All right, big kids, you ready? This morning, we heard from a letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Rome, the book of Romans. And the whole book of Romans is good news about Jesus Christ. No surprise, right? Jesus Christ. Now, I want to think about that name together a little bit. Jesus Christ. It's an unusual sounding name, isn't it? Is Christ Jesus's last name? Like Sarah Hall? I'm Sarah Hall. My last name is Hall, Mrs. Hall. Is Jesus Mr. Christ? Not exactly. The word Christ is actually Jesus's title. It's not his last name. So there are lots of people in our world who are referred to by a double name, but one of those names is actually a title. It's not the name that they got when they were born. Instead, it tells you something about who they are or what job they do. So for example, Governor DeSantis is our governor, right? When he was born, little baby, his mom didn't say, this is our baby governor. Right? That's not his name. It's his title. It tells us what job he does. So I want to do a quiz with you kids. I'm going to list a number of people that we refer to by their titles, and I want you to say what job they do. So I want you to tell your parents, and your parents are going to give us a thumbs up when you get it, okay? When you guess it right. Are you ready for the quiz? Okay, grownups, you can do this too. Have your spouse, you know, give us a thumbs up. <laughs> take, take turns. All right. President Lincoln was a what? What job did he do? Can you tell? Let me see, parents. Are we getting it? Yeah, okay, good. He was a president. Dr. Doolittle was a... Yep, seeing some thumbs up. Good job. He was a doctor. Princess Jasmine is a... I'm looking for those thumbs. Good, we got some thumbs up. Was She's a princess. Okay, Fireman Sam is a... Yep, yep, grownups are nailing this. I'm getting, you guys are doing great too. All right, Fireman Sam is a fireman. Captain America is a... Superhero. <laughs> He's a captain. Okay. Judge Judy is arguably a... Good. Kids got it. She's a judge. Kind of, sort of. Okay. Pastor Taylor is a... Uh, I got the thumbs. Good job. You guys are nailing this. Good. All right. So all those people, we use two names, but one of them is a word that tells us what job they do, right? So sometimes the title comes after the person's name. Like we have two more. You ready? Bob the Builder is a... Yeah. Good job. I see Samuel's thumbs. He's a builder. And here's a tricky one from the Bible. You ready for this? John the Baptist or John the Baptizer is a... <sighs> yeah, good. I got thumbs. He was a baptizer. He baptized people. So sometimes the title comes after the name and that's what happens with Jesus. So when we refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ, we're using his name and his title. The title tells you what the person's role is or what job they do. So Jesus is his name. That's the name his parents gave him when he was a baby. 
and Christ is his title. That's what job he does. So what kind of title is Christ? Well, Christ is basically an old fashioned word for king. So it's a Greek word that means the anointed one. It's the same as the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. Since it was mostly kings who were anointed with oil when they became kings, instead of a crown on their head back then, they would get oil on their head and that would show you they were the, becoming the king. So it's a word, Christ is a word to tell you that somebody is a king. So when you hear the name and the title Jesus Christ, another way to say that would be Jesus the King or King Jesus. So I want to say, we're going to practice that together. Repeat after me, okay? Jesus Christ means King Jesus. Let me see your lips moving, kids. Jesus Christ means King, King Jesus. Jesus. Good job. Okay, so why is it important to remember that Jesus is our King? Because when we think about kings, we usually think about who's in charge or who's making the rules. But in the ancient world, the kings had another very important job, and that was to take care of their people. It was the king who was supposed to protect his people and provide for his people, make sure they had enough food and things like that. So when we call Jesus, Jesus Christ, which also means King, king Jesus. Jesus, yep, we're remembering that he's our ruler and he's also the one who takes care of us. And the, he is still doing that today. He did that for the halls this week. He, helped, he was our ruler. He helped us make a really hard decision. He told us what to do. And he was our provider. He gave us something we've been praying for for a long time. And we're so thankful that Jesus is still our king. So we're gonna say that together one more time. Repeat after me. Jesus Christ means King, king Jesus. Jesus. Let me hear you. Jesus Christ means King, king Jesus. Jesus. And what a good king we have. Let me pray for you guys. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these children. We thank you for the way that they help us learn to follow you. And we thank you that you have promised to be our king, Jesus. Um, we're so grateful to have a king who rules us like a good shepherd and also takes care of us. We pray that these children would know you to be their good King Jesus all the days of their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, please pray with me as we open God's word together. Father, you have a rich feast for us prepared from your word this morning, and I pray that we would uh, have good appetites for it, that we would be hungry for your word, um, that we would uh, give ourselves to listening and meditating and chewing on the things that you have provided for us. I pray, Lord, that we would, uh, that our minds would be awake and our souls would be awake to you this morning. Um, and Father, please, would you be with each one of us by your Holy Spirit to give us the gift that we need to be strong and faithful in this season. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it's an exciting day for me. Um, today we're going to start a new series, a new sermon series in the book of Romans. Um, and we've uh, sort of made a plan to preach right the way through the book of Romans uh, over the next year. Uh, and I'm excited about that because Romans is one of my very favorite books in the whole Bible. It was uh, hugely instrumental in my own journey to faith. Um, as I was talking to Fumi last week, he said the same thing about the book of Romans. Um, and I'm sure it's a favorite for many of you guys as well. So I think we're going to have 
a really good time uh, studying it together. Um, but the idea to study Romans in this season of the world history in particular was first planted in me by um, Dr. Esau Macaulay. So I think most of you know Esau, or at least you know of him. Um, we listened to one of his talks last month in preparation for our second multi-ethnic gathering. Uh, Esau is a priest in the ACNA. He's a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, and he's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. And he also has a brand new book out, which is selling very fast. Uh, some of us have managed to get our hands on it. It's called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. So uh, Esau's kind of a real powerhouse in the ACNA right now. And um, we listened to one of his talks last month, and here's what he said. He said, the changes in America give us an opportunity to recover a vision of the church that has been there since the beginning. And that vision is of the church as a multi-ethnic community whose very diversity testifies to the universal saving power of the gospel. Esau says that the present moment is not challenging us to be less biblical in order to be relevant, but actually in being biblical, we will be relevant. And when Esau talks about being biblical, he wants to draw special attention to the book of Romans. And he says, we can use the book of Romans as a multi-ethnic church planting manual. So this was where the idea to study this now came from. And Esau gave us a bit of a roadmap for the whole book because he calls the church to recover four themes from Romans in particular. He wants us to recover a theology of kingdom in our preaching, recover a Pauline anthropology, particularly in his doctrine of justification, to recover theology as a means of sustaining multi-ethnic communities and to recover the topic of apologetics to deal directly with issues of concern in minority communities in the way that Paul does in Romans. So you can tell that Esau's a really smart guy and he's setting a high bar, um, but uh, I've really loved this challenge and I really wanted to dive into it. And I really sense God speaking through Esau on these points. Um, and so it was one of the main reasons I wanted to direct our attention to the book of Romans now in this next season of our life together. So we're gonna jump in. Uh, if you can reach a Bible, please open up to beginning of the book of Romans, chapter one, verse one. Um, today I'm gonna to give us kind of an introduction. It's gonna be pretty dense um, and concentrated, trying to sow some of the, the major ideas of the letter for you and give you some headlines some teasers, things to get excited about over the coming weeks. And we're gonna unpack it more slowly and gradually over the next few weeks. So beginning with Romans chapter one, verse one, it begins, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then jumping ahead to verse seven, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So we see that Romans is a letter written by Paul to the Christians in Rome, and they were Christians that Paul had not yet met, although he wanted to. And his letter to them begins with the standard format that was good manners in the first century. You say who it's from, who you're writing to, and then you give them a greeting. So the who it's from section is in verses one through six, and it's the longest who it's from section uh, in the New Testament letters. 
Um, and, and in uh, Greek writing, the who it's from section was an opportunity for the author to not only say who he was, but also to give his credentials, right? So not only who I am, but why you should listen to me. And Paul takes full advantage of that opportunity here to give his credentials to the church in Rome. He says that he's writing in the service of Jesus Christ. He's fulfilling his calling to be an apostle. That's a witness to Jesus sent out to tell the whole world. And Paul is focusing on the one thing that he is set apart by God to do, which is to spread God's gospel, his public announcement to the whole world. So then in verse two, as part of his credentials, Paul immediately launches in to sharing his gospel. He's so excited about it. He wants to tell it right away. Uh, he makes the announcement right there at the beginning of the letter while he's still introducing himself. And we're going to come back to these verses in a moment, but let's finish tracing the structure of the letter because verse seven begins the two section, who the letter is to. And Paul says it's to those who are in Rome. And he says two things about them. First, that they are loved by God. And second, called to be saints, right? They are loved by God and called to be saints. And Paul reminds them right away of both their privilege and their responsibility right? Both loved by God and called to be saints. Um, and then he draws near to them as a brother and says, I'm just like you, because they have been called just as he himself was called back in verse one. So Paul's saying, we're the same. We're on the same team. And then at the end of verse seven is the greeting part of the letter formula. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might be familiar with this greeting. Uh, it's, a, it's probably Paul's favorite greeting that he uses in several of his other letters. He, he, he greets people with grace and peace. And it's really a very uh, clever and meaningful greeting. He's saying a lot more here than just hello. Uh, because in saying grace and peace, Paul is knitting together the typical greetings of both Jewish and Greek culture. So Jews would greet one another with shalom, which means peace. And Greeks would greet one another with charis, which means grace. So Paul saying grace and peace is like a modern American preacher visiting like a church in Hawaii and beginning with hello and aloha. Uh, it's a welcoming and inclusive gesture to everybody in the audience. But Paul's doing even more than that with this greeting because he's also affirming that each of these cultural greetings are good things and right things. These are excellent words, some of the best words around, and they're both central to his own gospel message because it turns out that grace is the only means by which anyone can be justified, and peace with God is the unimaginably precious result. So put them together, and grace and peace is itself a glorious explanation of the gospel. And in a way, by saying this, Paul is affirming both Jewish and Greek culture together. All right, so that's how he starts his letter. And you can see right away that Paul takes enormous care over his writing, that every word is well chosen and deliberate. And as we keep reading, that gets even more evident. And uh, as we, I, I put these first 17 verses together as our opening section, because I see them as just like the perfect introduction to Romans. They're a magnificent overture to what's gonna come, the great treaties that's gonna follow. They're like the overture before the opera where you hear like snatches of all the great songs that are coming up. Um, and the overture climaxes at the end of this section 
with the greatest theme of all in verse 17, where Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith. And when he says that, he's quoting from the Old Testament, from the prophet Habakkuk. I'm not sure if you've ever read Habakkuk before. Chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. And Bev did a marvelous job telling that passage uh, for us this morning. Um, and it was also a hard job um, because it's really quite hard to understand what Habakkuk is talking about in chapter 2. Um, I usually like us to go back and read the Old Testament when it's quoted in the New Testament because I find that reading the Old Testament greatly enriches our understanding of the gospel. It usually tells us so much more, gives us a lot more context. Um, so I did that with Habakkuk. But in this case, like, I really find it very, very difficult to see how the context in Habakkuk chapter 2 enriches our understanding of what Paul has to say, because what Habakkuk has to say is really quite obscure. Um, it's really... Um, this is coming, and Bev really captured that very well in what she had to share with the hope that God's bringing. But like, in terms of details, and what does it mean, and what does it look like, and who is God talking about... It really seems quite obscure until you get here to Romans and Paul explains it. And I really feel like Paul provides all the light on what it means when God says the righteous will live by faith. And I actually feel like as I've studied this book of Romans all as one piece, that you could say the whole letter is an explanation of what it means that the righteous will live by faith. Um, so I've really sort of been meditating on this statement and there's sort of three ways that you can hear it, three ways you can understand it. The righteous will live by faith. So first of all, you could understand that by means of faith, the righteous will live. Okay, so because of faith, the righteous will find life instead of death. All right. Or you could understand it to mean that those who live by faith, who lean on faith for their life, are the ones who will be counted righteous. In other words, living by faith is the standard of righteousness. The righteous will live by faith. Or you could understand it to mean that the daily habit of righteous people will be to live according to faith. You hear that too? So it could, like faith is a rule of life for righteous people. The righteous will live by faith. So we could say the righteous will live by faith or the righteous will live by faith or the righteous will live by faith. Uh, and the wonderful part is <clears throat> that all three of those things are true, as Paul explains. <clears throat> and broadly speaking, I feel like Romans 1 through 4 explains why faith is the essential ingredient of righteousness. Then Romans 5 through 8 explores the wonderful implications that we are called righteous. And then Romans 12 through 16 explores what it means now to live by this faith. So <clears throat> all three of those are really great, big and important ideas in Romans. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I want to press into those three big ideas as Paul introduces them here in these opening verses. So the first part is the righteous will live by faith. So in other words, faith is the way that people come to life. And Paul says that very thing in verse 16. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
So faith just means believing the gospel, that Jesus died to pay for your sins and then he rose again to rule the world. And believing that is itself the power to save you. Faith is like the active ingredient that brings people to life. And Paul is very, very excited about this ingredient of faith. So here's a illustration. I hope this isn't too silly, but um, this is my anti-dandruff shampoo. All right. Um, and when you look at the ingredients on the back, it says active ingredient, and it only has one thing listed, pyrithione zinc. And it says that the active ingredient is just 1% of everything that's in here. So 99% of this, it does nothing about my dandruff. It's just oils and fragrances. It only has one active ingredient and i think a bit like that uh paul says something a bit like that about faith which is that it's the active ingredient of our christianity it's the pyrithione zinc it's the part that uh, does the job and paul's going to spend the next four chapters of his letter explaining carefully why faith is so precious and important and why that has always been the case throughout the history of God's people. This isn't new. Paul says that everything he teaches is according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament scriptures. Um, none of this is new. Friendship with God has always been about faith, as indeed he demonstrates right here by quoting his theme verse of the whole of Romans from Habakkuk, from an Old Testament prophet. Um, so we're going to have a lot more to say about faith in the coming weeks. But for now, let's just notice in these opening verses in verse 8, that Paul's personal greetings to these Roman Christians begin by praising their faith. So he says in verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in the whole world. And then he says in verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So you see that Paul thinks their faith is the most exciting thing about them. And why? Because through their faith, the power of the gospel has brought them to life. All right. And Paul is going to spend a lot of time in this letter talking about life. It's life versus death. How did death come into the world? Why is it still such a problem? Why do we all still choose death? And how can we find new life instead? And that theme is introduced here because back in verse four, it says Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, life from the dead. Those two themes are introduced at the beginning. So Jesus took on death deliberately for the sake of solving this problem of death. And Paul's going to explain a bit later on how our faith in baptism is what unites us to Jesus in a death like his so that we can also be joined with him in a resurrection like his. These are huge ideas, teasing you for what's to come. Uh, but this is why faith is essential for life. All right, so that's the first really big theme of Romans, that the righteous will live by faith. And we're going to be asking ourselves throughout this letter, do I have faith? Do I believe in the gospel of Jesus, that he died for my sins and was raised from the dead. And what difference does that make in my life practically? Do I really trust today everything that Jesus says? And am I risking my life on it? And how can I encourage my brothers and sisters to stand firm 
in their faith, if faith really is as important as Paul says it is. All right, so the first, the righteous will live by faith, and now second, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, the people who are made alive by faith are counted righteous. That's an enormous idea which Paul is going to explore in chapters 5 through 8 particularly of his letter. And we're going to have to spend a good bit of time on this over the coming weeks because when we hear that word righteous, it really isn't a very exciting word to us at all. Uh, really, the only way that we use it now is to call somebody self-righteous, which is an insult. <laughs> um, but righteousness as a word and as an idea is enormously exciting to Paul. And in Romans, righteousness is this huge and glorious idea. Paul talks about righteousness 49 times in 16 chapters. And he explains at length why unrighteousness is such a big problem in the world, even that it's the problem. And why being made righteous, or in our translation, being justified, is the best thing ever, the best thing that could happen to anybody. And he also explains what precious gifts come our way along with this gift of righteousness. So there's a lot more to come on this subject too. But for now, I want to set it up by just explaining this idea of righteousness. Because in both the Old and New Testaments, um, it's a word that has several different meanings. And they're the very, very closely overlapping meanings. So righteousness in both Testaments is the idea of, being, of something being right, of something being good or solid, in perfect working order, well-designed, excellent and fit for purpose so i was looking around my house and trying to find what, what would be a good illustration of righteousness something in my house that's just really excellent and really well designed and i had to scratch my head and work hard because it's just not many things that are like that almost nothing is and the best thing i could come up with here was my beats headphones all right my set of beats headphones uh, so I was given these last year as a gift, and man, these are a truly excellent product. I don't want to sound too much like a commercial, but, um, but these, these are sturdy, and they're reliable, and they're comfortable, and they're durable, and they're lightweight, and they give perfect sound. I didn't even know my music had all that bass, and um, they, have, they have a flawless Bluetooth connection and a 40-hour battery life. I feel like I never have to charge these things, and they just go on and on and on and on working all day long. So that, I mean, I don't want to sound like a commercial but they're really one of the very few things i've ever owned that just works right it does what it's designed to do excellently every time and i'll settle on these as an illustration of righteousness and paul wants to say in romans that nobody on earth is like these beats headphones <laughs> Uh, no one works excellently and reliably in the way they were designed to. But of course, in our case, we're not innocent victims of bad design. We're actually morally culpable because our unrighteousness stems from our deliberate choice to reject God and his truth. And Paul goes on to say that that unrighteousness is the heart of everything that's wrong with the world. So what the world needs most to fix is for people to be righteous again. Uh, and, and Paul starts by saying, well, so we have the law. And the law of Moses does indeed describe righteousness. It shows us what it would look like for people to be righteous again. And Paul spends a lot of time in Romans talking about the law. The law is one of only three subjects with a higher word count in Romans than righteousness. 
So, and the only two higher than that are God and Christ. The top four most common words, God, Christ, law, righteousness. That's what Paul most wants to talk about here. And Paul says of the law that it is righteous and good. Um, but even the people who have the law can't follow it. So what happens is the law ends up being their judge and executioner. So it doesn't solve the problem of righteousness for people. So what better news is there then that God has solved the problem of righteousness in his son, Jesus Christ? He has made a way for us to be righteous again. Because of Jesus and our faith in him, we get to be called righteous. And that's great, but it's not even the highest point in Romans. Paul goes a step higher than that. The high point is in chapter 8. Because of that gift of righteousness, we also get to be called sons of God. Sons of the living God and to call God Abba, Father. And we receive the Holy Spirit into our hearts as comforter, teacher, advocate, and guide. That's what righteousness means. So second, the righteous will live by faith. And practically, it changes our approach to the world when we know that we are righteous, that we're called righteous by God, that we're justified in the eyes of God, who is the only judge who matters. Because what that means is that we walk around in the world with a clear conscience and a strong sense of self, neither arrogant nor shy. It means that we do not crave the attention or praise of people, that we do not prostitute ourselves in all manner of ways to gain their attention. Instead, we walk around like the princess, princesses and princes of heaven that we are, aware that the eyes of the world are on us and that we set the standard and willing to serve a desperately hungry world and lead it into the light. That is what people do when they know that they are righteous. So the righteous will live by faith. And that leads us to the third point, which is that the righteous will live by faith. So what that means is that having been raised to, uh, raised to life by faith and made righteous by that faith, we then continue to live in this same faith. So faith is not only the gateway into salvation, it's also the path that leads us all the way home. And we see that here in verse seven, where Paul describes the Christians in Rome as those who are loved by God and called to be saints. We know that Paul had never met any of these guys, but he knew that was true for all of them because to have faith in Jesus is to be loved by God and to be loved by God is to be called to be a saint. There's a new life of faith for all of us. God wants it for every one of us. Similarly, Paul says in verse 5 that through Jesus he has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So faith in God produces obedience to God. Many people want to make the point from the book of Romans that we're saved by faith and not by works, and that is absolutely true. Paul works very hard to make that point, and he says it directly in chapter 3, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But then some of those same people want to go on and suggest then that there's no such thing as Christian duty. 
that there's nothing we have to do at all because it's all done for us by Jesus. And since we're covered from all sin by his blood, we can just go ahead then and do whatever we like. But Paul would be absolutely horrified by that idea. And in fact, he was horrified by it when he wrote Romans and he denied it directly in chapter six because he said, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound by no means. Instead, the life of faith is also a life of obedience. And it's essential that we embrace the new life of the spirit and put to death the old deeds of the flesh. So there's going to be a lot more discussion in Romans of this flesh versus spirit idea later on. And that's a pairing that's also introduced here in the overture in verse 3. Because Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus himself united flesh and spirit in perfect obedience. He died in the flesh and now calls us to crucify our flesh and he was raised by the spirit and now calls us to live in that same spirit. So the spirit is our teacher to lead us into healthy habits and he is all the fuel that we need to keep living this life for God. So I was thinking about an illustration for this and I came up with an apple. All right. I chose the apple as an illustration for living by faith because this is fuel, the fuel that we need to give us strength. And it's also a symbol of a healthy habit from the expression, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Um, and the life of faith is built on spiritually healthy habits. So I'm excited to explore all of this together. And Paul is really excited. <laughs> Romans is an exciting book. It's full of glory and full of song. None of this is burdensome to us or should feel burdensome. Instead, it breaks into our dismal lives like daylight into a dungeon. It says you can be saved, whoever you are. You can be righteous and you can live a new life and become the change you want to see in the world. And Paul says all of this is true first for the Jews, but then also for the Gentiles. It's a gospel that includes every nation in the world. And as Esau says, Paul's theology, his anthropology, and his doctrine of justification are the world's best hope for racial reconciliation. So we look forward to pressing into Paul's vision of the church as a multi-ethnic community whose very diversity testifies to the universal saving power of the gospel. All right, so that was the fire hydrant version of Romans 1, the beginning introduction. I've given you a very concentrated introduction. Uh, the ideas were that the righteous shall live by faith.